since you talked with the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secrets. How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? it been since your mind felt at ease how long since your heart knew no burden can you call him your friend how long has it been since you knew that he cared for you understand that it's been since this afternoon since I practiced that so you know it's kind of hard to remember those things <clears throat> that repeat I kept thinking I know where I got to go and then I I don't know I didn't end up there I don't know thank you Josh for keeping going that's good second chronicles chapter 12 second chronicles chapter 12 tonight we're going to begin reading in verse 1 we're going to read through the first 12 verses of that chapter and then we'll continue tonight with um, our message. Second Chronicles chapter 12, beginning verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible simply says, And it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. It came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. The twelve hundred chariots and threescore thousand horsemen, that's sixty thousand, and the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, and the Lubims and the Sukhims and the Ethiopians. And he took the fenced cities with which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then came 
Shemaiah, the prophet, to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. When the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again into the guard chamber. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him, that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. In this particular passage, I note a number of things. <clears throat> First of all, by way of summary, we think about Solomon's example. Rehoboam, of course, was the child of Solomon. Solomon was one of the great kings of Israel. As a matter of fact, Solomon's kingdom most closely mirrors that of the millennial kingdom to come. Still, in his life, Solomon's life, that is, there was an inconsistency. There was a failure to consecrate his life wholly to God. He began very strong. He started off well, but in the end, his heart was led astray by the many women that he loved. Matter of fact, you may have read about Solomon and his escapades. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Pretty busy guy. <clears throat> Nonetheless, those wives turned his heart away from the Lord and unto idols. Rehoboam, his son now, has taken over the kingdom. And um, Rehoboam obviously was very privy to his father's escapades. I'm sure he was very aware of some of the things that his father had done. And you may say, well, but early on Solomon was very strong and he was very sturdy and he was very steadfast. But may I say that Rehoboam did not know the Solomon of his youth. He knew the Solomon in his latter years. And so the only example that this particular young man had growing up was that of a man who had somewhat compromised his position on his, on his faith and compromised his position in the Word of God and on the God of Israel. And so we note the statement, and we often are reminded of it, that says, more is caught than taught. And that would prove to be true in the life of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. As wise as Solomon was, he ultimately acted very foolishly. And as a result of that, we're going to see in our passage that his son immediately made kingdom-splitting decisions. And his relationship with God would be inconsistent as well. 
So we note Solomon's example prior to our passage. Now we note Rehoboam's mistake, however. Early on in his ministry or in his, his kingship, he, right off the bat, is given an opportunity to take over the kingdom that his father had left behind. The people come to Rehoboam and they say, Listen, your dad was pretty tough on us. Uh, toward the end there, he was really taxing us greatly. He was making things rather difficult on us. Uh, he, he really had his thumb on us. He, he had his foot on our neck. And he really made us serve him. And it got a little bit crazy early on. It was wonderful. It was unbelievable. But, man, things got a little bit different. And we're wondering how, what kind of king you're going to be. I, I mean, we will serve you and we will surrender to you, but we really would like you to be a little less harsh on us. We wish you would be, uh, you know, back the taxes off a little bit. Uh, I wish you'd make, make uh, you know, Solomon care uh, a little bit less expensive. Did you get that? Some of you are sleeping. And so nonetheless, he, he, he ultimately, somebody got it. But anyway, he, uh, it took him a while, but he got it. But no, nonetheless... Um, you know, he said, listen, we want you to back off a little bit. And so what does he do? He goes to some counselors. He, he, uh, he seeks the advice of the old men. And the Bible calls them old men. And, and that, that means old men basically means wise men. <laughs> These guys have a few years of experience. They've been around a little bit. And so he goes to them and he asks them, he says, all right, uh, what do you think I ought to do? What do you think I ought to do? The people want me to back off a little bit. The people want me to be a little bit more lenient. The people want me to not be so strict in their taxes and, and maybe give them a little bit more money in their pocket and not be so, so difficult with them and not have so much government and, and just, you know. And they said, you know what? You ought to back off. You know, don't tax them so heavily. Go ahead and be kind to them. Be reasonable. All right. I'll think about it. And then he goes to his peers, young men his own age. At this time, he's 40 years of age, 41 actually, when he takes over the kingdom. And so he goes to some men that are probably in their late 30s, early 40s, and he says to them, what do I ought to do? Here's the situation. He explains the situation. And they say, man, let me tell you what you ought to do. We'll, gi we'll give you some advice. You'd be really wise to take it to Rehoboam. Man, you need to... You need to step on their throat. You need to strangle them with taxes. You need to make it as tough as possible. What your daddy did, let it be nothing in comparison to how you're going to treat them. Rehoboam, coming from the wisest, I mean, he is the son of the wisest man that ever lived. He is the son of the wisest man that God said ever lived. He makes the most ridiculous Totally unfounded, stupid decision he could have ever made. He says, I'm going to follow these guys that are my age. I'm going to do exactly what they said. I'm going to follow my peers and disregard the advice of the wise old men in the kingdom. And so what happens? Well, what we find then is Israel's mutiny. There's a mutiny. In Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 19 the Bible simply says this. It says, I'll find it here in a second. And Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Israel rebelled. They said, we're not putting up with it. We're not dealing with that. Forget that. 
That's not how we're going to live. And so Israel separates themselves from Judah and from Rehoboam. And then there's another a man that comes on the scene by the name of Jeroboam. We see Jeroboam's apostasy. Jeroboam, he takes that group of Israelites. They were once one nation, this whole stage representing all of Israel. Now all of a sudden, here over here in this corner is Judah and Rehoboam. And the rest is Israel now. And Jeroboam, he takes Israel, the rest, and he says, guess what, gentlemen, ladies? We're going to go ahead and worship idols. And he made calves, golden calves, and he made idols. And he said, bow down to your gods. Isn't that amazing? The apostasy of Jeroboam. And so now we have a divided nation. We have Israel on one side. We have little Judah on the other. Now, because of the apostasy of Jeroboam, some of the people in Israel said, man, listen, we know that God is God. We know that we ought to be worshiping him. We shouldn't be bowing down to those idols. We're going to go run over to Judah. And so a number of people ran to Judah. And Judah was strengthened by those priests and Levites and others that came to Judah. And so Rehoboam now and Jeroboam would have a battle their whole lives. They would fight with each other their whole lives. For 17 years as king, Rehoboam would fight Jeroboam and Israel. Then we arrive at our passage. We arrive at our passage. In chapter 12 of Second Chronicles, we note right off the bat... Rehoboam's foolishness. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. Are we going to even believe what we're going to read here? I, I, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Hmm. Wow. Nice. Then we see, as a result, Shishak's invasion. Shishak is the king of Egypt. Here comes Egypt, the Egyptians, and they're coming to take over Judah. Over there in chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible says, And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam's, uh, Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Now think about this for a minute. The kingdom has been split five years ago. As soon as Rehoboam takes over, he makes this horrible decision to follow the advice of the young men versus the old men. Makes a horrible decision, but he rebounds wonderfully. It's amazing how he rebounds. Because in chapter 12, verse 1, as we noted already, he had established the kingdom. He had strengthened himself. So things are going well for him. Five years now into, five years into this. Five years. Rehoboam forsakes the Lord. And now all of a sudden, here comes this enemy from Egypt. After everything God has done, after all the success that he's realized, 
After everything that has transpired, God still was in your corner. God still blessed you. God still strengthened you. God still provided for you. And then the Bible says that when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. We see Judah's response, though, to this invasion. Here's Judah's response now. Look, if you will, in verse 5 and 6. Then came Shemaiah, the prophet, to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah. We have Rehoboam and his leaders. They're gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak and said unto them, This man of God, this prophet, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Now watch this. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves. And they said, The Lord is righteous. What a response, huh? What a response. Notice Rehoboam's repentance up in 2 Chronicles 12, 12. Notice, and when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him, that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. We see Rehoboam's repentance, and there in that same passage, God's reaction. When he humbled himself, then the Lord stepped up and did something. You see that? Somebody says, I'm really disturbed by this. I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed to think that because I sin, God would forsake me since I forsook him. I, I thought he'd never forsake me. I thought he would never leave me alone. I thought I was good to go no matter what I did, no matter what I said, no matter how I lived. Oh, yeah, if you're saved today in this dispensation of grace in which we live, yes, in this one sense, you're never forsaken. In one sense, God is in you and will be with you to the day of redemption. However, He doesn't have to bless you. As a matter of fact, He doesn't even have to, to do anything nice for you. As a matter of fact, He is obligated to do the opposite in many cases. According to Hebrews chapter 12, when he calls it chastening and scourging. Sadly enough, in the Christian life today, in the Christian church that we live in, we somehow have gotten the idea that God stands or sits in heaven as an old man and he's there to provide for us anytime we want it, anything we need. Oh, by the way, when I'm ready, I'll come see you. Oh, do you got any more candy for me, Grandpa? You got anything else good for me? I mean, you know how grandparents can spoil their children. We get the idea that God's some kind of grandparent up in heaven and his responsibility, sole responsibility, is to make sure that I'm happy, I'm content, and that everything's all right in my house. That's the idea that we get sometimes. At least it seems that way by the way we respond to God. And unfortunately, Jeroboam responded in that manner. Even though Jeroboam made a, a horrible decision when he followed the young men, God still enabled him to strengthen himself and to establish the kingdom. And they were going like gangbusters. Things were going well for them. But they, he forsook the law of the Lord. And when he humbled himself, when he humbled himself, I believe in that statement, 
there is a valuable lesson for us tonight. Humility is vital in the believer's life. It's never a matter of if you should humble yourself. It's a matter of when will you humble yourself. That's all there is to it in our lives. See, this morning, tonight I want to take just a few minutes and I want to consider this aspect of humility. I want to look at it just for a couple of moments. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll do that. Father, bless us in these next few minutes. Be glorified in it. Fill me with your spirit. Help us. Lord, may we learn from Jeroboam's mistake. May we not follow in his footsteps. Lord, help us, Father, to avoid the pitfalls that we read of in the Old Testament. You said you give them to us for our learning. Now, Father, help us to learn from them. So thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, I want to note the expectation of humility. The expectation. In the Word of God, we are, we are exhorted and we are told to humble ourselves. In James chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, we read this, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So there's no debate on uh, this aspect of humility. We are obligated, we are responsible, we are commanded to be humble. It is a position that we are to take. It is a, a, a state of mind that we are to possess. It's, it's a characteristic and quality that we do not have a choice as to whether or not we will comply or not. It is a command, a demand of God. So we know the expectation of humility. But now, let's consider the evidence of humility. In our passage, we're going to see evidence of humble hearts. Evidence of people who have surrendered to this command of God, this demand of God. Notice what it says uh, over in verse 6. The Bible says in chapter 12, verse 6, Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. There's a mouthful there, by the way. Now, let me share just a couple of thoughts. The evidence of humility. Number one, the evidence of humility is the acknowledgement of who God is. If you're humble, if you've humbled yourself, you are acknowledging who God is. At least according to the past, they said the Lord is righteous. Well, that's a characteristic. That is a quality. Uh, that is a, 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 a who God is. He's righteous. He's holy. All of those things. And so we see here that, that the people of God, the leaders, as well as Rehoboam himself said, listen, I, I, we're getting a view of God here. The Lord is righteous. And so the, the, there's an acknowledgement of who God is. And when we get a proper view of God in our life, it will change our outlook and it will change our attitudes. I mean, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we read about that prophet, that great prophet Isaiah. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. In verse 5 of that same chapter, we read, Then said I, Isaiah again now, after seeing the Lord high and lifted up, he says these words, Woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me, for I am undone. 
It wasn't until he saw God high and lifted up that he saw himself low. He says, woe is me for I am am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What we find simply is this. Isaiah got a view of God and it changed his view of himself and it changed his view of his society. All of a sudden, he recognized his sin, and he saw the sin of his culture and his society. And all of a sudden, things didn't seem okay anymore. Now, all of a sudden, what he was watching and what he was viewing and what he was listening to and what he was exposed to did not sit well with him anymore now that he saw Christ high and lifted up. Evidence of humility. One is the acknowledgement of who God is. Also from the passage, the Lord is righteous. There is the acceptance of what God does. Humility says, you know what? It's all right. So you're going to send Shishak over here along with his armies, um, in, uh, an unnumbered amount of soldiers, by the way, not just 60,000 chariots or horsemen, I should say, but, but it, it goes on to say an innumerable amount of soldiers. I mean, we, don't, we can't even count them. There's so many. The last time we read or later on we read about Egypt coming up on Judah, there's over a million man army, by the way. So we know that there's probably at least a million or more here again that have come against them. And so what we find is this innumerable amount of, uh, of, of opposition. And, and the people of God, uh, it's an amazing thing to me. I mean, here they are, of course, forsaking the law. Thank you, Rehoboam, for forsaking the law and uh, leading the people into sin. We understand. We, we, we understand that. We, 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 we could be very upset with you. But instead, what they do is when God says, hey, enough's enough, guess what? I'm sending Shishak down because you've forsaken me, because you've gone against my will, because you failed to follow my word. I tell you what, I'm sending this innumerable army to destroy you. And they humble themselves. And what did they do when they humbled themselves? They acknowledged who God was. And then they turned around and accepted what God was doing. They said, okay, you are God. And you are righteous. That means you're right. And therefore, if you feel that Shishak should come down and destroy us, being humble as we are, we are willing to accept that because you are righteous. And we know that if you are righteous, then you will only do what is right. That's how the humble heart responds. They did not complain. We don't have any evidence that they were critical of God's judgment. We don't get the idea. They said, oh God, what's wrong? Why won't you forgive us? God, what's wrong? No, they just simply said, the Lord is righteous. We've seen a glimpse of God. We recognize Him as holy and righteous. And we realize that whatever God says is needed in our life, it's right. Not only that, but not only the acknowledgement of who God is but, and the acceptance of what God does, but the appreciation of when God does it. And this is really tough, too. I mean, let's face it, they had families. They had children. They had grandbabies. I can't imagine the thought of a, 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 a nation coming upon our nation, especially an army of that caliber and, and of, of that multitude and thinking we have no hope whatsoever. We will be overrun. We will be taken over. Our wives will be 
possibly in those days especially, ravaged and ripped out of our homes and our children be hauled off somewhere else if not just killed. But they said, you know what, Lord? You're righteous. We've sinned against you and you are holy and you are righteous and therefore you are right in what you are doing and, and therefore we accept what you're doing and we even accept when you're doing it. This is obviously the right time because you are righteous. This is obviously exactly what we need when we need it. See, God's timing is always impeccable, whether we realize it or not. It's always spot on, whether we understand it or not. And I don't have a full grasp of that, and I can't fully comprehend God's will and work in the world, in the universe, and I don't understand why sometimes I would have to suffer, maybe, or maybe my family or friends would suffer the way they do, but I have to believe, I have to believe that there's a God in heaven, and if there's a God in heaven then he is righteous. And if he is righteous, I must recognize who he is. And because I understand who he is, I must know and understand that and accept what he does. And I know that his timing must be right too then. We see the evidence of humility. We see the expectation, the evidence. But note the end result of humility. The end result. Verse 12. Isn't it a wonderful thing what takes place here? The Bible, speaking of Rehoboam, says, and when he humbled himself. Notice what transpires. The wrath of the Lord turned from him. That he would not destroy him altogether, and also in Judah things went well. I see two elements here. A direct result of humility. Number one is mercy. Notice the mercy in the passage, verse 12. It says, and when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him. That is mercy. You say, what do you mean mercy? He did not get what he deserved. That's mercy. When we do not get what we deserve, that is mercy. God extends mercy to Rehoboam. And notice the other thing that's extended. Grace. Notice again, he goes on to say, the mercy, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. He didn't deserve that. He should have gotten destroyed. He forsook the Lord. He turned his back on God. He reviled the commands. But in his humility, God rewarded him with mercy and gave him. He didn't give him what he deserved. But notice the grace. And also in Judah, things went well. Now he turns around and gives them what they don't deserve. He didn't give them what they do deserve, mercy. Now he gives them what they don't deserve, going well with them. He didn't just deliver them. And again, you'll have to see in the passage as you read on, you realize that he didn't completely deliver them from Shishak. As a matter of fact, he allowed them to take some of the cities. He allowed them to be under tribute, so to speak, and under servitude. He allowed them to experience that because he wanted them to learn a lesson. But he did not destroy them altogether. He did not allow them to be washed off, uh, wiped off the face of the earth. He did not make them pay like they should have paid. And that was mercy. 
but grace was, then he turned around, the Bible says, and things went well. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but that's what I just want in my life. I want things to go well. I want things to go well. I know that there's not going to be perfect, maybe. I know that there's going to be some ups and downs. I realize there's going to be some disappointments and there'll be difficulties. But I want things to go well in my family. I want things to go well in my marriage. I want them to go well in my ministry. I want them to go well in my nation. I want them to go well in my world. And that's exactly what God gave Rehoboam and the nation of Judah. The end result. Mercy and grace. <clears throat> so what's the enemy of humility then? What keeps us from being humble? Well, let's learn from Rehoboam very quickly. In chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom. Okay, how'd you go so wrong, Rehoboam? How did in the world did they get away from you like that? I mean, God was blessing you. He, he, he had established the kingdom. Uh, the Bible goes on to say that he strengthened him and himself. And, and God, God permitted you to be strengthened. God permitted you, your nation to be established. What in the world went wrong? How things get all messed up? What's the enemy of humility? Well, right here in the passage we see it. First of all, success. Success. He had established the kingdom, it says. He had established himself. He had established his kingdom. God had, I mean... Rehoboam, with God's help, had once again placed this small little group of people, this tiny nation, back on the map. He had established a sense of national pride and world recognition. Why would Shishak be coming up against him if he didn't know who he was? So what we have is some success taking place here. We have Rehoboam who made a horrible decision who thought for sure he was done, whose kingdom was rent, split. God was all in that, by the way. And here he is stuck with just one, two of the little tribes of Israel. He had a great expectation and the hope of ruling a nation like Solomon and like David, his father, had. But no, no, now he's with just this small group. But God blessed him. He worked hard. He strived. I'm sure he struggled at points, but in a very short period of time, five years at the most, he's established and strengthened success. And with success, he forsook the law of the Lord. You get that. You see how success obviously affected Jeroboam to where he saw his success, and forgot where it came from. All those things, I mean, he obtained power, position, prosperity, all those things, none, none of those things in and of themselves are wrong, by the way. Power, there's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with position. There's nothing wrong with prosperity in and of themselves. But unfortunately... <clears throat> combined in Jeroboam's li Rehoboam's life produced an air of pride and self-accomplishment. We see success. What else? Strength. We've touched on it already. We won't have to spend a lot of time. 
But the possession of strength can, af- can effectively divert our attention from God. When we feel strong, when we feel strong, often we become self-sufficient and we turn and neglect, we turn from God and neglect God. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, the Apostle Paul, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God or of the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul was one of the most educated, experienced, and exceptional, except, uh, exceptional men that ever graced the faith. I mean, amazing man of God. And yet he was very careful not to become self-absorbed and self-sufficient. He depended solely and completely on God, and so must we. The Bible says in Psalm 118.8.9, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 27 says, "Trust Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In Psalm 33.16 and 17, the Bible says, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. No king saved by an army is what he's saying. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any of his great strength, uh, any by his great strength. In our world, we have military, we have technology, we have all of these assets at our disposal. But when it's all said and done, if we neglect the Lord, if we turn our back on the God that made this country what it is, or should I say what it was, and sadly, Sadly, it's lost what it was. Not because we're any less intelligent. Not because we're not any less innovative. Not because we don't have the necessary tools and resources. But because we have consciously rejected the God of heaven. And sadly enough, if there is one need in this nation... It is not to deal with ISIS. It's not to overcome Obamacare. It is not to somehow change the political landscape. It is to get a grasp on who God is and love Him for who He is and accept His will in our life and to follow Him unashamedly and unapologetically. when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him, that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. When he humbled himself. When he humbled himself. When he humbled himself, that's when God's wrath was averted. That's when God's blessing came. I pray that we will be quick as a people, as individuals, as believers in Christ. Be quick to humble ourselves in every situation and circumstance. Rehoboam's sin, along with the nations, the nations demanded a response from God. It demanded one. And God permitted the Egyptians to attack and oppress Judah. The reaction of God's people, however, could have been much more different, much different than it was. But they humbled themselves. And they sought after the Lord. You know what? 
you and I will find ourselves facing a number of obstacles, a number of enemies, a number of difficult situations and circumstances amidst this life. But may God help us to respond with an attitude of humility. May God help us to acknowledge who He is, to accept what He does, and to ultimately appreciate when He does it. See, humility is more than a smug smile on our faces. It's more than a low-key, quiet personality. Oh, look how humble she is, how humble he is. They're so, so spiritual, so quiet. No, no, there's more to it than that. It is the understanding of recognition, who God is. It's the spirit of submission, a total surrender. And it is an obedience despite our condition. True humility always places us in a position of obedience. If we are not obedient, we are not humble. It is that simple. If we are not obedient, we are not truly humble. Because humility always places us in a position of servitude, submission, surrender, and obedience to the God who placed us here and saved our souls. When he humbled himself. When he humbled himself. If we're not humble, the question is simply this. When will we humble ourselves? Because it is only in that humility that we will find the favor of God and the blessing of God. Father, we come to you. Thank you again for the privilege we have to be a part of your family and, Father, for just the opportunity.